I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Welcome to the Midweek Show, everyone. We're going to do Chapter 4 of Ivan Sanderson's book, The Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, uh, uh, from 1961. So, And we're also going to have a little bit of bonus material after that story, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Tom, do you want to have a few words? Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And if you like the show, just please click like and subscribe, and you can support us on patreon we got a link in the description awesome folks we're going to do something a little bit different we're going to try this and see how it works out in the interest of getting some better interaction with you folks and tom and i really like to have interaction with you guys uh so what we're going to do is we're not going to come back and do the commentary like we have been doing at the end of this what we're going to do is have you folks either comment on youtube or email us and on the weekend show, when we do the Q&A, we'll address your comments and questions at that time and do a little discussion about today's show. If that's uh, applicable to you folks, we'd appreciate the input. All right, Tom, anything further? Well, I just want to say uh, you can send your questions, comments to questions at creekdevil.com. And although we don't respond back in person, we reply on the show. So listen to the next show. And so everybody can benefit from your question and our answer. Absolutely. Like I said, we're not going to do the commentary today at the end of the readings. We'll do that. We'll bring this up on the weekend show. So uh, you'll want to tune in for that. All right, folks, stand by and we'll get this started. This story is Chapter 4 from the book The Abominable Snowman, written by Ivan T. Sanderson, published in 1961. Chapter 4's title, The Appearance of Big Feet. If you want to find out how crimes are really solved, ride around with a police patrol for a few nights. The same little things, happening time and time again, always bring the culprits to book. Mr. Ostman's story was related to Queen Elizabeth II when she visited British Columbia in 1959. The story is said to have been submitted to Her Majesty by an official, along with other Sasquatchery, in a remote vacation cabin at a lake near Kamloops on August 28. By coincidence, I was on that same day closeted in a small railroad shack with a charming Amerindian couple named Mr. and Mrs. George Chapman, at Jacko's old retreat of Yale, some miles lower down the Fraser River. I also was hearing a story, but firsthand and in what turned out later to have been rather extraordinary circumstances. We had crossed the log-filled Fraser in a small boat, rowing first away upstream and then very rapidly a long way downstream broadside, 
and then finally, a long way back upstream again, on the other side in the lee of a tall bank. Scrambling to the top of this, we struck a railroad along which an Amerindian family were straggling in from the hills. By some strange quirk of fate, this turned out to be the Chapman family for whom we were looking. They hospitably invited us into the freight office, behind which they had a small house. That could have been a very tense or even profitless interview for several reasons. Here we were, two pale faces with locally odd accents. Robbie Christie, though born in New Jersey, has ranched in Colorado, wears a Texan-type hat, and has a vaguely British accent, while I talk a sort of bastardized Anglo-Saxon with an American intonation and a British accent, neither of which are popular in Canada who had met up with a reticent Amerindian couple, apparently quite by chance on a railroad track, and who now had suddenly demanded to hear the facts of a series of incidents that had happened to these good people 18 years before. Somehow, however, and perhaps due mostly to a kind of mild shock, we all got off on the right foot, and within a surprisingly short space of time, Mrs. Chapman was recounting those terrible hours with complete clarity, only every now and then being mildly corrected by her husband, or having her account augmented by details which she had not witnessed. We had heard their story from several sources, and had read it in several printed versions, but I wanted to get it firsthand, and I wanted to be able to shoot my particular glossary of awkward biological questions at principles who were alleged eyewitnesses of a living Sasquatch in daylight. It is just as well that we crossed the Fraser River just when we did, and so met the Chapmans. Because about a month afterward, they were drowned crossing at the same spot late one night. The irony and tragedy of this event upset me greatly, for, as I have said, I have a great liking and respect for the Amerindian peoples, and I not only found this couple graciously natural and friendly, but they also impressed me, as very few other people have ever done, with their sincerity and honesty. The Chapman family at the time of the incident consisted of George and Jeannie Chapman and three children. Mr. Chapman worked on the railroad. They lived near a small place called Ruby Creek, 30 miles up the Fraser River from Agassiz. It was about three in the afternoon of a cloudless summer day when Jeannie Chapman's eldest son, then age nine, came running to the house, saying that there was a cow coming down out of the woods at the foot of the nearby mountain. The other kids, a boy age seven and a little girl of five, were still playing in a field behind the house bordering on the rail track. Mrs. Chapman went out to look, since the boy seemed oddly disturbed and then saw what she at first thought was a very big bear moving out among the bushes bordering the field beyond the railroad tracks. She called the two smaller children who came running immediately. Then the creature moved out onto the tracks, and she saw to her horror that it was a gigantic man covered with hair, not fur. The hair seemed to be about four inches long all over, and of a pale yellow-brown color. To pin down this color, Mrs. Chapman pointed out to me a sheet of lightly varnished plywood in the room where we were sitting. This was of a brownish ochre color. 
This creature advanced directly toward the house, and Mrs. Chapman had, as she put it, quote, much too much time to look at it, end quote, because she stood her ground outside while the eldest boy, on her instructions, got a blanket from the house and rounded up the other children. The kids were in a near panic, she told us, and it took two or three minutes to get the blanket, during which time the creature had reached near the near corner of the field, only about a hundred feet away from her. Mrs. Chapman then spread the blanket and, holding it aloft so that the children could not see the creature or it them, she backed off at the double, to the old field, and down onto the river beach, out of sight, and she ran with the kids downstream to the village. I asked her a leading question about the blanket. Had her purpose in using it been to prevent the children seeing the creature? In accord with the alleged Amerindian belief that to do so brings bad luck and often death? Her reply was both prompt and surprising. She said that, although she had heard white men tell of that belief, she had not heard it from her parents or any of her people, whose advice regarding the so-called Sasquatch had been simply not to go further than certain points up certain valleys, to run if she saw one, but not to struggle if one caught her, as it might squeeze her to death by mistake. No, she said. I used the blanket because I thought it was after one of the kids, and so might go into the house to look for them instead of following me. This seems to have been sound logic, as the creature did go into the house, and also rummaged through an outhouse pretty thoroughly, hauling from it a 55-gallon barrel of salt fish, breaking this open and scattering its contents about outside. The tragic irony of it is that all these original three children did die within three years, while, as I have said, a month after we interviewed them, the Chapmans and their new children drown as well. Mrs. Chapman told me that the creature was about seven and a half feet tall. She could easily estimate the height by the various fence and line posts standing about the field. It had a rather small head and a very short, thick neck. In fact, really no neck at all, a point emphasized by William Rowe and by almost all others who claim to have seen one of these creatures. Its body was entirely human in shape, except that it was immensely thick through its chest and its arms were exceptionally long. She did not see the feet, which were in the grass. Its shoulders were very wide and it had no breasts, from which Mrs. Chapman assumed it was a male, although she also did not see any male genitalia due to the long hair covering its groin. She was most definite on one point. The naked parts of its face and its hands were much darker than its hair and appeared to be almost black. George Chapman returned home from his work on the railroad that day, shortly before six in the evening, and by a route that bypassed the village, so that he saw no one to tell him about what had happened. When he reached his house, he immediately saw the woodshed door battered in and spotted enormous humanoid footprints all over the place. Greatly alarmed, for like all of his people he had heard since childhood about the, quote, big wild men of the mountains, though he did not hear the word Sasquatch till after this incident. He called for his family and then dashed through the house. Then he spotted the foot tracks of his wife and kids going off toward the river. He followed these until he picked them up on the sand beside the river 
and saw them going off downstream without any giant ones following. Somewhat relieved, he was retracing his steps when he stumbled across the giant's foot tracks on the riverbank further upstream. These came down out of the potato patch, which lay between the house and the river, milled about by the river, and then went back through the old field toward the foot of the mountains where they disappeared in the heavy growth. Returning to the house, relieved to know that the tracks of all four of his family had gone off downstream to the village, George Chapman went to examine the woodshed. In our interview, after 18 years, he still expressed voluble astonishment that any living thing, even a 7-foot, 6-inch man with a barrel chest, could lift a 55-gallon tub of fish out of the narrow door of the shack and break it open without using a tool. He confirmed the creature's height after finding a number of long brown hairs stuck in the slabwood lintel of the doorway, above the level of his head. George Chapman then went off to the village to look for his family and found them in a state of calm collapse. He gathered them up and invited his father-in-law and two others to return with him for protection of his family when he was away at work. The foot tracks returned every night for a week, and on two occasions the dogs that the Chapmans had taken with them set up the most awful racket at exactly two in the morning. The Sasquatch did not, however, molest them, or apparently touch either the house or the woodshed again. But the whole business was too unnerving, and the family finally moved out. They never went back. After a long chat about this and other matters, Mrs. Chapman suddenly told us something very significant, just as we were leaving. She said, It made an awful funny noise. I asked her if she could imitate this noise for me, but it was her husband who did so, saying that he had heard it at night twice during the week after the first incident. He then proceeded to utter exactly the same strange, gurgling whistle that the men in California, who had told us they had heard an Oma or Bigfoot call, had given. This is a sound I cannot reproduce in print, but I can assure you that it is unlike anything I have ever heard given by man or beast anywhere in the world. To me, this information is of greatest significance that an Amerindian couple in British Columbia should give out the exact same strange sound in connection with a Sasquatch that two highly educated white men did over 600 miles south in connection with California's Bigfoot is incredible. If this is all a hoax, or a publicity stunt, or mass hallucination, as some people have claimed, how does it happen that this noise, which defies description, always sounds the same no matter who has tried to reproduce it for me? A somewhat more colorful story was told by a well-known old Amerindian medicine man named Frank Dan. This I reproduced by the kind permission of Mr. J.W. Burns. This, he says, occurred in July 1936 along Morris Creek, a small tributary of the Harrison River. J.W. Burns writes this of Frank's story. It was a lovely day. The clear waters of the creek shimmered in the bright sunshine and reflected the wild surroundings of cliff, trees, and vagrant cloud. A languid breeze wafted across the rocky gullies. Frank's canoe was gliding like a happy vision 
along the mountain stream. The Indian was busy hooking one fish after another, hungry fish that had been liberated only a few days before from some hatchery. But the Indian was happy as he pulled them in and sang his medicine song. Then, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a fearful splash within a few feet of his canoe, almost swamping his frail craft. Startled out of his skin, Frank glanced upward, and to his amazement beheld a weird-looking creature, covered with hair, leaping from rock to rock down the wild declivity with the agility of a mountain goat. Frank recognized the hairy creature instantly. It was a Sasquatch. He knew it was one of the giants. He had met them on several occasions in past years, once on his own doorstep. But those were a timid sort and not unruly like the gent he was now facing. Frank called upon his medicine powers, Sula, and similar spirits to protect him. There was an immediate response to his appeal. The air throbbed and some huge boulders slid down the rocky mountainside, making a noise like the crack of doom. This was to frighten away the Sasquatch, but the giant was not to be frightened by falling rocks. Instead, he hurried down the declivity, carrying a great stone, probably weighing a ton or more, under his great hairy arm, which Frank guessed, just a rough guess, was at least two yards in length. Reaching a point of vantage, a jutting ledge that hung far out over the water, he hurled it with all of his might, this time missing the canoe by a narrow margin, filling it with water and drenching the poor frightened occupant with a cloud of spray. Some idea of the size of the boulder may be gained from the fact that its huge bulk blocked the channel. Later, it was dredged out by Jack Penny on the authority of the Department of Hinterland Navigation. It may now be seen on the 10th floor of the Vancouver Public Museum in the Department of, quote, Curious Rocks. When you're in Vancouver, drop into the museum and T.P.O. Menzies, curator, will gladly show it to you. The giant now posed upon the other ledge in an attitude of wild majesty, as if he were monarch of these foreboding haunts, shaking a colossal fist at the, quote, great medicine man, who sat awestruck and shuddering in the canoe, which he was trying to bail out with his shoe. The Indian saw the Sasquatch was in a towering rage, a passion that caused the great man to exude a repugnant odor, which was carried down to the canoe by a wisp of wind. The smell made Frank dizzy and his eyes began to smart and pop. Frank never smelt anything in his whole medicine career like it. It was more repelling than the stench of moccasin oil gone rotten. Indeed, it was so nasty that the fish quitted the pools and nooks and headed in schools for the Harrison River. The Indian, believing the giant was about to dive into the water and attack him, cast off his fishing lines and paddled away as fast as he was able. I include this story not so much for anything it might add to the general picture of ABSMs in the area. There is ample evidence of that in any case. But to exemplify the type of tale told by the Amerind that caused the white man to doubt his veracity. Frank Dan was an old and respected medicine man living by the precepts and beliefs of his ancestors. Thus, his interpretation of events had to be in accord with his position in the community. 
I believe that facts colored by these precepts may be readily spotted in his account and just as readily eliminated. If this is done, we are left with a pretty straightforward account, namely that while fishing, a Sasquatch appeared, hurled some rocks at the old gentleman, and stank like hell. The induced landslide and the weight of the second rock hurled, or perhaps merely dislodged into the river, as well as the giant's implied curse, are pure embellishments. Even the mass exodus of the trout might well be perfectly true and due to a cascade of boulders rather than to a stink in the air that they could, of course, not smell in the water. Besides, Frank Dan's, quote, medicine came off second best, and he had manifestly fled. He couldn't explain this fact away, so he just did the best he could so not to show up in too poor a light. As a matter of fact, Mr. Burns records that he gave up being a medicine man from then on, saying that his powers had been finally defeated. This would seem to be the act of an honest man. During this decade, the Amarins of this area appear, by all accounts, to have suffered quite a spell with their Sasquatches, one by the name of Paul, in the company with others, returning from a lacrosse game, met one on the main road near Agassiz. Another party, only a few miles away, ran into one on the mountain, and one of the men fired at it in pure fright, whereupon it pursued them to their canoe, in which they just managed to escape. Another local man, when dressing after a swim in a river on a hot summer day, was confronted by one near a rock, and was just about to address it in his language when it rose to its full height and nearly scared him out of his wits. Still another group told Mr. Burns that they had watched one fighting a large bear for a long time and finally killing it by strangulation. In another place, an old man said that a party of Sasquatches used to watch loggers at work and then, after they had gone home for the evening, come out and imitate their activities as if playing a game. But perhaps the most curious is an incident told to the same indefatigable investigator, Mr. Burns by the same Charlie Victor of Chilliwack already mentioned, and which I herewith reproduce with the former's permission. Charlie speaks and says, I was hunting in the mountains near Hatzik. I had my dog with me and came out on a plateau where there were several big cedar trees. The dog stood before one of the trees and began to growl and bark at it. On looking up to see what excited him, I noticed a large hole in the tree seven feet from the ground. The dog pawed and leaped upon the trunk and looked at me to raise him up, which I did. And then he went into the hole. The next moment, a muffled cry came from the hole. I said to myself, the dog is tearing into a bear. And with my rifle ready, I urged the dog to drive him out. And out came something I took for a bear. I shot and it fell with a thud to the ground. Murder. Oh my. I spoke to myself in surprise and alarm, for the thing I had shot looked to me like a white boy. He was nude. He was about twelve or fourteen years of age. Aside, in his description of the boy, the Indian said his hair was black and woolly. Wounded and bleeding, the poor fellow sprawled upon the ground. But when I drew close to examine the extent of his injury, he let out a wild yell or rather a call, as if he were appealing for help. From across the mountain, a long way off, 
rolled a booming voice. Less than half an hour out from the depths of the forest came the strangest and wildest creature one could possibly see. I raised my rifle, but not to shoot, but in case I would have to defend myself. The strange creature walked toward me without the slightest fear. The wild person was a woman. Her face was almost negro black, and her long straight hair fell to her waist. In height, she would be about six foot, but her chest and shoulders were well above the average breadth. The old man remarked that he had met several, quote, wild persons in his time, but had never seen anyone half so savage in appearance as this woman. The old brave confessed that he was really afraid of her and that he had fled. This story does add some significant facts to the overall picture because of the details given of the youngster's fur color compared to that of the female, and the curious statement about the length of her head hair. The former agrees with the accounts of Jacko and some other reputed ABSM youngsters. The latter is, as far as I know, a completely unique item. I wonder about this latter because I have noted a distinct tendency, perhaps psychological, for people to assume that the head hair of wild people would be of the Lady Godiva type. A good friend of mine, a well-known artist who has illustrated many scientific works and natural history books, once sent me his, quote, impression of a Californian Oma, which greatly surprised me. Despite the man's extensive knowledge of mammalian anatomy, and long experience in drawing animals to the specifications and approval of zoologists. He had depicted just a great big white type man with long flowing hair and an immense beard. This seems indeed to be the popular conception of an ABSM, yet everybody who claims to have seen one makes special mention of the small pointed heads, small round eyes close together and directed straight forward, extra-long arms, and short head hair, a naked face without beard, and prognathous jaws, but no lips, i.e. no eversion of the lips. The picture given of all of them, by those who claim to have seen them, is of creatures with several distinctly non-human characters, especially about the head and face. However, the same witnesses everywhere and all natives who say they know of the existence of ABSMs, and this goes for the Central Asiatics, as well as Malays, African, North, and South Americans, insist just as vehemently that the creatures are human rather than animal, quite where various people draw the dividing line between those two presents other puzzles. But the Kazakhs of the USSR, who caught one of their Ksai geeks, thought it was a man wearing a disguise. While the Soviet Army medical officer who examined a cap tar pronounced it so human that it should be released. Even the hill Batuks of Sumatra, who are themselves just about at the bottom rung of the cultural ladder, call their local Orang Pedniks and Orang Gedangs by a name that denotes, quote, wild men. The Malays of the same country, however, call even the Mias, their great ape, the Orang-Utan, i.e. Hutan, which simply means wild, Utan, man, Orang. 
The Emerins of our Northwest insist that the Sasquatches are very lowly forms of men, so lowly that they, Amerins, do not want to associate with them in any way, preferring not to talk about them and especially about the possibility of mating with them. That would lead to contamination of their race, and if the very idea got into the white man's head, it would lead to a further degradation of their status by the implication that they might be partly wild themselves. The basic humanity of ABSMs is perhaps understandable as regards the pygmy and the giant types, for both leave what at first sight look exactly like either very small or very large human footprints, as most certainly do the Eurasian almas. The man-sized mete type, on the other hand, leave a most unhuman type of footprint. Encounters with Sasquatches are really so common that they become boring in the telling. I could give dozens more, all of which were allegedly witnessed by more than two people and occurred between 1930 and 1960. But I shall refrain and confine my concluding remarks to three cases that for some reason created great stirs and which appear to have finally convinced the general public that something was going on. The first would not appear to have been any more outstanding than dozens of others, but the personalities of the couple concerned played a considerable part in the formulation of public opinion. These were two young people named Adeline August and her boyfriend, William Point. They happened to be particularly popular and attractive, and were then attending the local high school. They had been on a picnic and were walking home along the Canadian Pacific Railroad track right by Agassiz, when a large Sasquatch stepped out of the woods ahead of them. Adeline sensibly bolted, but young William stood his ground to cover her flight and grabbed up two rocks with which to defend himself. However, the ABSM kept steadily advancing, and when it was only 50 feet away, William Point decided to retreat. He said that it was about twice the size of an ordinary, large, well-built man, covered with hair, and had arms so long they almost reached the ground. William Point also said, quote, It seemed to me that his eyes were very large, and the lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face. End quote. Locally, the account of this young couple was fully believed, and despite the fact that they were Amerins. This was in 1954. The following year, the most outstanding of all Canadian cases occurred. This was related by one William Rowe, mentioned above, and is succinctly and amply covered in the following affidavit. Deposition by Mr. William Rowe. From the city of Edmonton, Alberta. An affidavit by William Rowe to the Agassiz Harrison Advance. Printers and Publishers, Drawer O. Agassiz, British Columbia. Attention, Mr. John W. Green. From the legal department of Allen F. McDonald, B.A., L.L.B. City Solicitor, H.F. Wilson, B.A., Assistant City Solicitor, and R.N. Sounders, Claims Agent. Dear Sir, Regarding Affidavit of Mr. William Rowe on August 26, 1957, Mr. William Rowe approached the writer requesting the swearing out of an affidavit in regard to a strange animal he had seen in British Columbia. The affidavit was drawn up by a member of our legal department and sworn to in the usual manner by the writer. I cannot state as to the credibility of the story. 
We trust the foregoing information will be of assistance. Yours truly, signed William H. Clark, Assistant Claims Agent. The affidavit follows. I, W. Rowe, of the City of Edmonton, in the province of Alberta, make oath and say, 1. That the Exhibit A attached to this, my affidavit, is absolutely true and correct in all details, sworn before me in the City of Edmonton, province of Alberta, this 26th day of August, A.D. 1957, signed William Rowe, and then signed by Clark, under a numbering D.D. 2822. Exhibit A. Ever since I was a small boy back in the forests of Michigan, I have studied the lives and habits of wild animals. Later, when I supported my family in northern Alberta by hunting and trapping, I spent many hours just observing the wild things. They fascinated me. The most incredible experience I ever had with a wild creature occurred near a little place called Tijon Cache, B.C., about 80 miles west of Jasper, Alberta. I'd been working on the highway near this place, Tijon Cache, for about two years. In October 1955, I decided to climb five miles up Micah Mountain to an old deserted mine, just for something to do. I came in sight of the mine about three o'clock in the afternoon, after an easy climb. I had just come out of a patch of low brush into a clearing, when I saw what I thought was a grizzly bear in the brush on the other side. I had shot a grizzly near that spot the year before. This one was only about 75 yards away, but I didn't want to shoot it, for I had no way of getting it out. So I sat down on a small rock and watched, with my rifle in my hand. I could just see part of the animal's head and the top of one shoulder. A moment later it raised up and stepped out into the opening. Then I saw it wasn't a bear. This, to the best of my recollection, is what the creature looked like and how it acted as it came across the clearing directly towards me. My first impression was of a huge man about six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing near 300 pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown silver-tipped hair. But as it came closer, I saw by its breast that it was female. And yet, its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader proportionately than a man's, about five inches wide in the front and tapering to much thinner heels. When it walked, it placed the heel of its foot down first, and I could see the gray-brown skin or hide on the soles of its feet. It came to the edge of the bush I was hiding in, within 20 feet of me, and squatted down on its haunches. Reaching out its hands, it pulled the branches of bushes towards it and stripped the leaves with its teeth. Its lips curled flexibly around the leaves as it ate. I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. The head was higher at the back than at the front. The nose was broad and flat. The lips and chin protruded farther than its nose, but the hair that covered it, leaving bare only the parts of its face around the mouth, nose, and ears, made it resemble an animal as much as a human. None of this hair, even on the back of its head, was longer than an inch, 
and that on its face much shorter. Its ears were shaped like a human's ears, but its eyes were small and black like a bear's, and its neck was also unhuman, thicker and shorter than any man's I have ever seen. As I watched this creature, I wondered if some movie company was making a film in this place and that what I saw was an actor made up to look partly human, partly animal. But as I observed it more, I decided it would be impossible to fake such a specimen. Anyway, I learned later there was no such company near that area, nor in fact did anyone live up Micah Mountain, according to the people who lived in Tate John Cash. Finally, the wild thing must have got my scent, for it looked directly at me through an opening in the brush. A look of amazement crossed its face. It looked so comical in that moment, I had to grin. Still in a crouched position, it backed up three or four steps, then straightened up to its full height and started to walk rapidly back the way it had come. For a moment, it watched me over its shoulder as it went, not exactly afraid, but as though it wanted no contact with anything strange. The thought came to me that if I shot it, I would possibly have a specimen of great interest to scientists the world over. I had heard stories about the Sasquatch, the giant hairy Indians that live in the legend of the Indians of British Columbia, and also, many claim, are still in fact alive today. Maybe this was a Sasquatch, I told myself. I leveled my rifle. The creature was still walking rapidly away, again turning its head to look in my direction. I lowered the rifle. Although I have called the creature it, I felt now that it was a human being, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I killed it. Just as it came to the other patch of brush, it threw its head back and made a peculiar noise that seemed to be half laugh and half language, which I could only describe as a kind of whinny. Then it walked from the small brush into the stand of lodgepole pines. I stepped out into the opening and looked across the small ridge just beyond the pine to see if I could see it again. It came out on the ridge a couple of hundred yards away from me, tipped its head back again, and again emitted the only sound I had heard it make. But what this half-laugh, half-language was meant to convey, I do not know. It disappeared then and I never saw it again. I wanted to find out if it lived on vegetation entirely or ate meat as well, so I went down and looked for signs. I found it in five different places, and though although I examined it thoroughly, could find no hair or shells or bugs or insects, so I believe it was strictly a vegetarian. I found one place where it had slept for a couple of nights under a tree. Now, the nights were cool up the mountain, at this time of year especially, and yet it had not used a fire. I found no signs that it possessed even the simplest of tools, nor did I find any signs that it had a single companion while in this place. Whether this creature was a Sasquatch, I do not know. It will always remain a mystery to me unless another one is found. I hereby declare the above statement to be true in every part, to the best of my powers of observation and recollection. Signed, William Rowe. This priceless document was also unearthed by the indefatigable John Green of the Agassiz Harrison Advance, 
upon whom the mantle of Sasquatch research, nobly worn by Mr. J.W. Burns for so many years, seems to have fallen. He published it in his paper, and the results were electric. Not only did it bring Mr. Ostman's story to light, it got the whole neighborhood on its toes, including even the Chamber of Commerce of the resort town of Harrison, which made moves to advertise a Sasquatch hunt as a come-on for its centenary celebrations. Fortunately, and decently, this idea was dropped, but $5,000 is said to have been offered for the capture of a Sasquatch. This was not, of course, collected, but it brought forth another rash of encounter stories. Notable among these, and most noted in the world press, was a story reported by a Mr. Stanley Hunt of Vernon, British Columbia, a respected and widely known auctioneer, who, when driving at night along the Trans-Canada Highway near a place called Flood on the lower Fraser River south of Yale, on May 17, 1956, had to slow down to permit one of them to cross the road. It was immense and covered with, quote, gray hair, and waiting for it on the other side of the road, there was, Mr. Hunt relates, another one, quote, gangly, not stocky like a bear, end quote. According to C.S. Lambert, writing in 1954, the situation changed considerably in 1935, when, story follows, after a series of alarming reports that these giants were prowling around Harrison Mills, 50 miles east of Vancouver, disturbing the residents by their weird, wolf-like howls at night, and destroying property. A band of vigilantes was organized to track the marauders down. However, no specimen of the primitive tribe was captured, and many white people became openly skeptical of the existence of the giants. According to Alan Roy Evans in the Montreal Standard, B.C. Hairy Giants, the Indians are now very sensitive to any imputations cast upon their veracity in this matter. During the 19th century, they were ready to tell inquirers all they knew about the Sasquatch men. But today, they have become more reserved and talk only to government agents about the matter. They maintain that the, quote, wild Indians are divided into two tribes, whose rivalry with each other keeps their number down and so prevents them from becoming a serious menace to others. Expeditions have been organized to track down the Susquatch men to their lair in the mountains, but the Indians employed to guide these expeditions invariably desert before they reach the danger zone. However, certain large caves have been discovered with man-made walls of stone inside them, and especially shaped stones fitted to their mouths like doors. The difficulty in the way of penetrating to the heart of the Morris Mountains district is very great. The terrain is cut up by deep gorges and almost impassable ravines. It is easy to get lost and hard to make substantial progress in any one direction for long. In the fall of the following year, large human-like footprints turned up overnight all over the place in this area. Throughout a hundred years of Sasquatchery, footprints are often mentioned casually but nobody seems to have been particularly impressed by them or to have done anything about them. Suddenly, they took over the front pages. This is the end of Chapter 4. Times Reporter has a look at tracks, says they're real, by Betty Allen, Humboldt Times Correspondent. September 1958, Willow Creek, California, 
This is my story about Bigfoot. Idle words about wanting to see the huge tracks which have been appearing on the access road construction job at Bluff Creek caught up with me Friday morning at 7 o'clock. Philip Ammon, a neighbor, knocked at my door reminding me of the journey ahead. Checking with the Jess Bemis family, we found that there were new tracks to see. In the light traffic of early morning, we were soon rolling into Hoopa Valley with its light current of blue smoke hanging low. On the way to Wetchpeck, five cows lay in peaceful contentment on a small turnout beside the road. A loaded logging truck passed within inches of their noses. On the one side of the road drops in a sheer descent for hundreds of feet into the Trinity River. On the other side, a rock cliff towered high above us. On down the road, a mother pig and three half-grown piglets brought us to a full stop. On over the Wetchpeck Bridge and up along the Klamath River, we were soon climbing the easy grade out of the canyon on the Bluff Creek Road through a wide road and well-watered, we traveled slowly, for this was totally new country to us. A driver of the water truck directed us to take the lower road around Onion Mountain to the construction site. Tremendous Cliff The country is standing on end in the steep ridges that rise higher and higher. Here and there were rough rock and tremendous cliffs, but it is all slide country. No sandstone or cave formations. Bluff Creek is a good-sized stream and looks like it would be fine for fishing. The rangers at Orleans say, for some reason, it is not. We talked briefly to Charles Doney, who was operating a tractor, and he offered us the use of his pickup truck. We never could have gone the remaining six miles otherwise. Here was a man's busy world. Heavy dirt movers working, but allowing us through. Jackhammer men had to pull their airlines out of our way. Extremely rough in some places, the road was unexpectedly smooth in others. What did we expect to see? Maybe one track, and we could say it was all a hoax. Or maybe an unexpected inner sight might give us the answer. Jerry Crew directed us to the location of the tracks. I'll show you those tracks, Crew said. I could tell that some of the construction men were quite skeptical. I am told that some of them wouldn't even go and take a look. The first actual line of tracks definitely jolted me. On the hard ground where Philip Ammon's number 12s made a very light imprint, the track of Bigfoot sunk a half to three quarters of an inch in depth. Twenty clear, deep footprints marched along the side of the traveled portion of the road. Eighteen more were seen at intervals where the tractors had not run over them. We followed them down the road for some distance and found them in both hard and soft earth. Gravel rolled out of the cut bank to the side of the road, and I quickly looked that way. I was nervous in realizing that I was in the middle of the forest growth. I looked back to see how far the men and the equipment were. The thought passed through my mind. Just what on earth is a peaceful old rocking chair grandmother doing here anyway? Doubts, hoax angle. We measured and studied the tracks. Could they be a hoax? Feet on the end of sticks? Rubber feet? Watching the activity of the men and how hard they were rushing their work to finish this portions of the road before winter, I could hardly see any of them putting in time at night, making three quarters of a mile of tracks of any kind. 
Bigfoot's tracks are in perfect proportion to what one would expect in their stride of sometimes 60 inches, 52 inches, or the one short step over a small mound of dirt, which was 40 inches. Even the depth to which the track had been pressed into the ground was in keeping with their size. What brings Bigfoot into the area? My guess is that the gasoline lantern light at the cook's tent attracts the wanderer's interest. There are workers living in both small tents and trailers close by the road. Now, is this a phony? A human hoax? If it is a prank, it is so natural. Anyone with stilts with feet would have to have both foot impressions, but it isn't that easy to maneuver in the soft earth. If they are wearing novelty story feet, how do they weight them to get the right depth effect? And when a man works hard labor physical all day, does he feel like prowling about at night, missing his sleep to make funny footprints? Of Bigfoot, one of the bosses said, We have an agreement, the thing and I, but he doesn't know about it. If he leaves me alone, I'll leave him alone. We returned home, definitely no wiser, only knowing we had seen 38 perfect tracks at least 16 inches long and 7 inches wide. We saw them. We measured them. We are still puzzled. My name is Martin Elliott. The incident occurred when I was about 10 or 11 years old, so in 1972 or 1973. At the time, I lived in Puyallup, Washington, in the South Hill area, Shaw Road, near a housing development called Forest Green. When this occurred, myself, my stepbrother, and a neighborhood friend whose name I can't remember, we were just out playing in the woods. My friend, my stepbrother, and myself were playing in an area off of a dirt road approximately half a mile off of Shaw Road near the Kate Dairy Farm Pasture. We went up into this dirt road about a half mile up and went into some trees that we had an area that we liked to consider our camp that had some downed trees and it wasn't far off the road. We were sitting there, just as kids do, you know, playing and stuff, and uh, we heard a sound that sounded to myself like a lady screaming or a baby, you know, cry out. It was just one loud cry. That was it. We talked about it and we thought, what was that? And the friend that was with us said, well, maybe it was a horse from the pasture. I said, that doesn't sound like a horse. Well, maybe two or three minutes later, we got this smell started coming around us. And it smelled like, you know, burnt match heads or rotten eggs and... We couldn't really figure out what was going on, and we were still sitting there and towards the roadside near the trees that we were at, about seven to eight feet into the trees, the tree limbs pushed aside, and there, standing before us, was a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch. We basically just froze and stared at it for just like, I mean, it seemed like forever, but I know that it was about probably 30 seconds before we panicked and took off running. All three of us ran as fast as we could back to our house. He ran back to his house, and me and my stepbrother ran back to our house. After that, we had told our parents about it, and we were pretty panic-stricken about it. We told our parents about it, and my mom at the time worked at the Daffodil Bowling Alley in Puyallup, and she and my stepfather were talking at the coffee shop about the incident and were telling their friends. A couple of gentlemen walked up and said, "'Excuse me, we are from the University of Oregon.' We are here in town doing some Bigfoot research, and would you feel okay with us coming and interviewing your son? They said, sure, no problem. 
They came up to our house, and we sat at the dining room table, where they basically interviewed me about the situation, about what had happened, showed me some sketches, and asked me if this is what it looked like or if that is what it looked like, had me describe the scent, and had me listen to tape recordings, and said, well, did it sound like this tape recording or like that tape recording? And so they did a pretty extensive interview. They felt at the time that we were not pranking them, so that was the extent of it. If I can describe the best description I have for the creature that I saw, he or she or it was, I would say, seven and a half to eight feet tall. It had a brown-black hair that was probably three to four inches long, covering, you know, its whole body except for its hands. And I really didn't look at its feet. I just saw its hands because of the way it held the branches back. Its face was a kind of cross between an aboriginal Australian and a gorilla. That's the easiest way I can describe it. It made no attempt at all to chase us or anything. It just watched us. It just looked at us. So basically, that's my story. It's been a situation where I talked about it when I was a kid. Everybody thought I was an idiot. You know, thought I was crazy. So it was something that, through most of my life, I really don't tell anybody about. It's not something that I ever really tell anyone. But at the time, around that area, after our sighting, there was quite a bit of activity in the Puyallup area. And so I hope this is helpful to you. And feel free to contact me if you have any more questions. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The name of this story is Major Waddell and the Yeti, a tale of footprints in the Himalayan snow. Written by Micah Hanks, May 9th, 2019. The forecast looked grim over Sikkim, as Major Waddell's Tibetan porters were confiding to him. They had probably seen worse. Poor weather wasn't unusual along this stretch of India's high northeastern mountains, and a bit of fresh snow could even be helpful if it allowed for the fresh spore of any animals worth tracking. The year was 1887, and Lawrence A. Waddell, a major with the British Indian Army, was on leave and making the most of his time off. His profession was as a medic. Though he had a general interest in the sciences, having become a fellow of both the Royal Anthropological Institute and the Linnaean Society. Snow now fell heavily, Waddell later wrote of the experience, and a driving hurricane of loose powdery snow was fast obliterating our footmarks, so that, as one of our porters pointed out, there was a great danger of our losing our way and sharing the fate which hereabout befell his former master, the late Captain Harmon, in 1881. Harmon's course had brought him along this very same route at the time of his demise. He died of frostbite while stationed in a temporary encampment awaiting his baggage coolies, who never arrived. Waddell's Tibetan porters were much more reliable, fortunately, and the captain of his rugged mountain team would be seen through the falling snow ahead of him, poised upon a mountain yak as it bobbed along. Waddell rode a pony instead, though it was unable to keep pace with the curious-looking mountain animals his Tibetan friends were riding. The captain kindly offered me the use of his yak, Waddell recounted. It, however, refused to let me mount and made several plunges at me as I approached it, although held back by the rope through its nose ring. 
and I was not sorry that I had failed to mount it, for some time afterward the tackle of ropes that fastened on the rough saddle loosened, and the captain came down from his high perch with a rush, and on top of him came all his cooking pots and pans, which were carried in two bags slung on behind the saddle. Such were the misadventures that accompanied any pass through the steep mountains of northeastern India, Waddell supposed. However, as the Major would later recount in his book, Among the Himalayas, the occasion ended up providing more excitement than just Himalayan snow. At one point in their perilous trek, the party came across an unusual path in the snow that greatly excited the Tibetan crew. Waddell gives us the following account. Some large footprints in the snow led across our track and away up to the higher peaks. These were alleged to be the trail of the hairy wild men, who are believed to live amongst the eternal snows, along with the mythical white lions, whose roar is reputed to be heard during storms. The account given by Waddell would inspire writers of later decades most notably because it is among the earliest accounts penned by a Westerner, which appeared to describe the famous yeti, or abominable snowman. The beast is famously purported to haunt the crags and crevices among the Himalayas, occasionally making treks across the frigid snowfields at higher altitudes in order to traverse the region, inevitably leaving behind the kind of spore which Waddell and his company observed during that storm in 1887. Decades later, Ivan Sanderson, arguably one of the most notable chroniclers of Sasquatchery, to borrow one of his own original terms, of which he begat many, introduced the legendary creature in his Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, with an account of Waddell's discovery, of which he noted the following. He remarks almost casually upon this remarkable achievement and wonders vaguely not what manner of man, but what sort of creature could have made them, and why it should have decided to cross this awful pass in the first place. The Major did not realize when he penned this, though, just what he was starting, though starting is perhaps not the exact word to describe his remarks, for what he recorded was already ancient history when Columbus sailed for the West Indies. It just so happens that, as far as popular recognition is concerned, his was one of the earlier mentions to appear in print in the English language, in what may be called modern times, of what has latterly become known as the abominable snowman. Indeed, Waddell's account would become one of the early famous accounts of an alleged crossing of paths with the fabled Himalayan wild man, and likely due in part to the diligence of Sanderson and a handful of colleagues who, in the years following the Second World War, began to write for various magazines and other publications about mysterious animals unknown to science. Sanderson is, in fact, widely credited with the first use of the word cryptozoology, albeit in hyphenated form in Abominable Snowmen. However, Despite Sanderson's diligence in collecting reports of abominable snowmen, or ABSMs, as he referred to them, Waddell had a fair bit more to say about those mysterious tracks that he and his company discovered in the fresh Himalayan snow. The belief in these creatures is universal among Tibetans, Waddell wrote. 
None, however, of the many Tibetans I have interrogated on this subject could ever give me an authentic case. On the most superficial investigation, it always resolved itself into something that somebody heard tell of, Waddell complained. That's not all. Waddell even went so far as to offer an explanation for the mystery. He goes on to say, These so-called hairy wild men are evidently the great yellow snow bear, Ursus Isabellinus, which is highly carnivorous and often kills yaks. Yet although most of the Tibetans know this bear sufficiently to give it a wide berth, they live in such an atmosphere of superstition that they are always ready to find extraordinary and supernatural explanations of uncommon events. That's one way of speculating what sort of creature could have made them, as Anderson wrote of Waddell's experience. It seems the Major was of the opinion that they had merely come upon the former path of an indigenous Ursus Isabellinus, although one may argue that Waddell's skepticism would be the natural response of any Westerner confronted with the claim that a mysterious wild man existed in the remotest corners of one of the world's steepest mountain ranges. Looking at these footprints, Waddell wrote of the Yeti, prints that he and his company found, I thought of the poor snow bears pent up in the sweltering heat of the Calcutta Zoo, and what they would not give to get into such Arctic regions. So what actually made the prince that Waddell and his company saw? Well, that is, and remains, a matter of speculation, although Waddell was undoubtedly familiar with bear treks from his background in biology, as well as his experience as a hunter. Later in his journey, he recounts seeing a similar set of ursine prints that converged with the company's path, this time left in the soft mud of lower elevations, and thus easily made the stuff of speculation or superstition. Even if Waddell wasn't very prone to believe in the existence of a mysterious wild man of the Himalayas, his account nonetheless inspired countless armchair historians in the years that would follow. And even a few retired world explorers, like Ivan Sanderson, with his storied account of unusual footprints that he found in fresh snow during his trek, toward Darjeeling in 1887. This is the end of the reading. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.